Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 90th edition of the PJ Archive. It's a phone interview I did with the English singer-songwriter and legendary guitarist Hank Marvin. Hank most famously played lead guitar for The Shadows, a group which primarily performed instrumentals and was the backing band for Cliff Richard. In 1986, Hank moved to Australia. I spoke to him in late 1999 when The Shadows were back touring with Cliff and I began by asking Hank about his guitars. In the early days, when I was toured with Cliff, the first tour we did together, I had one guitar. In fact, I just had one guitar for probably about 18 months. And then in 1960, I think I got an acoustic guitar as well. Whereas now, I I don't know, I've probably got about 30 guitars now. I I don't sort of collect them as such. I'm not actually a collector, you know. Most of them are there for a purpose. Some I bought for specific purposes to do with recording or and doing the same thing on stage. Have you still got your guitars from the 60s or 50s or whatever? No, I haven't, unfortunately. The, the, my very first guitars my dad bought me on my 16th birthday, I wish I'd kept it. Um, I, I don't honestly know what happened to it. I have a feeling I, I gave it away or lost it or something like that. It's, but it's a pity. I, I, I really would like to have kept that for a little bit of uh, you know nostalgia. The guitar Cliff bought me originally in 59, the Fender Strat. That, that is Bruce Hassett, let's put it that way. Right. Uh, and he won't let you have it back. Well, well, Cliff uh, reckons he lent it to him, but uh, oh, right. Bruce has a different viewpoint on it. <laughs> when you're on stage with Cliff now, do you ever have sort of nostalgic flashbacks? Do you ever look at him and think, well, I remember doing this back in the 50s or whatever? Not actually on stage. I, th- I think sometimes when you, uh, for example, get into rehearsal mode and you're, you're looking at the numbers you're going to do, and I think perhaps before you actually play them, you know, you you sort of flashback then perhaps to maybe the first time you, you did them or the first time it was a hit or something like that uh, e- even if you just realize how young uh, we looked when we when we were first starting out you know i mean as cliff said last night he was 17 we were 16 when we did that first tour you know yeah. pretty young really and uh, therefore when you look at the first few years of um, of success we were still very, very young, you know. I mean, I think I was when Apache was a hit. I was eighteen. You know? yes. It makes you realise how young we we were, which in itself, to me, just amuses me. You know, looking back, because obviously I'm used to the face I see in the mirror, or the photographs that I have had taken a few months ago, whatever. And that's the face you see. So when you see an old TV thing from the '60s or from the odd thing I've seen even from the, like about 1959 something out of the archives you think my goodness how young we looked you know like a bunch of kids which of course we were how do you account for being so incredibly gifted at such a young age well i don't think i was incredibly gifted at all really um no more than many others i think i just had a few lucky breaks that that's it really i think you're being a bit modest that you play the guitar pretty well well i don't think so i mean i think i don't play too bad badly now really but i was able to to a degree copy a lot of the things i liked on 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 early rock and roll records the sort of records you know that had the twanging guitars on presley records gene vincent records etc you know and um I, I was able to either by hearing these things on the radio and then trying to memorize them and copy them come up with some kind of an impression of the style they play but having done that i mean i don't think i was particularly gifted or or had a great technique because unfortunately i was kind of playing basic rock and roll stuff and 
I didn't get into other areas of, of like really practicing on things like scales and technique exercises, you know, which, which really, if you do that at an early age, you really uh, accelerate your, your learning process and your abilities. Uh, I've discovered that with my younger son, Ben, when he, he started playing when he was 16. And uh, he used to just sit in his bedroom after he'd done his homework, and um, I'd show him a few things, and then he started listening to records. And I couldn't believe how his technique improved within about six months. I mean, he was playing some really difficult stuff, only because he was constantly practicing uh, things that were actually difficult to play. You know, mm. he, he heard them on the record, trying to work, he'd work them out slowly, and then try to get it up to speed. How do you think you'd have fared if you'd come into the business now at 16 or 18 or whatever? Oh, crumbs. It's a different world now. I mean, for a start, it, today with all the uh, vocal groups, the boy bands, it's, it's a different uh, a different world, isn't it? Guitars at the moment are, are not sort of a flavor of the month, you know, not, not with young girls anyway. It's all boy groups, boy bands. So uh, I think it would be very difficult now to, to break in the way music is at this time. I mean, I, I suspect that the fashion will change. It appears that, from my experience of pop music, going back to sort of things I listened to as a kid in the 50s, that things seem to go in waves of fashion, and, and we've had this uh, vocal group kind of thing, or boy bands, whatever they call them, for quite a while now. And I guess like all these fashions, it will slowly peter out and something else will replace it. Do you ever get bored of playing Move It, Apache and FBI and everything? Uh, no fun if I don't. Towards the end of the 60s, uh, in the Shads, we, a problem developed in the band with, I think, with an attitude towards one another and our music. And we lost, I think, all the, the, the creativity that we'd had earlier on in the 60s and the, the ideas that were uh, fairly free-flowing. And I think we'd fall into a bit of a rut with playing just hits and things mm-hmm. on stage. And... Uh, because of personal problems within the band too, I think these things sort of compounded, and we we found ourselves in this huge rut. And at that point, I, I have to admit, looking at around sixty-seven, sixty-eight, and I was beginning to get really bored with playing the kind of hits you mentioned. But when we got back together in the seventies um, for the Eurovision Song Contest, started to work live again. I suppose because we'd had a bit of a break from one another and from the music. And in the meantime, I'd sort of had been able to reassess my, my view of things like that. And I came to a realization that the music, uh, from the fans' point of view, is obviously very important. When they come to see a show, they, you know, they're not hearing Move It or, say, from us, Apache or Wonderful Land every night. They might come and see a show once every 18 months or something yeah. like that. So for them, for the most part, it's a one-off experience uh, over a year, 18 months. Oh, yeah, they want to hear it, definitely. Exactly. Thinking about those things, I thought, well, really, the, the proper professional attitude is to, is to consider it, first of all, from their point of view. You know, as an artist, you should be going out, performing the music that they know and love mm. and have paid to see with a, with, with a great deal of conviction and passion. And I thought about this, and I thought what that music had meant to me in terms of my career and what it had given me, and was able to reassess all that. So from that point on, I've always gone on stage with whatever I play now, whether it be Apache or whatever, and I play it with as much passion as I possibly can. I really do, as, as if it, this is my current hit record, you know, that's doing so well for me. I have that, that attitude about it, and it really helps, because I think you put put so much into the music then, and it comes across. And I think, you know, audiences aren't fooled. They, they, if you're marking time with numbers, they, they know it. They know you're not giving it everything. And if, but if you do give it everything, 
they feel it and they respond to that and I've, I've learned that and so therefore no I don't get bored playing that stuff now no. How come most artists have a string of hits during a certain period and then sort of seem to go very quiet for the rest of their time I mean why is it? Well I suppose again it maybe has something to do with fashion I, I, I'm not entirely knowledgeable about this because it you know it, it's strange that you can have quite a big fan base yet not have hit singles take cliff's fan base which is enormous and yet he can make a couple of records which which are not big hits and you think with it with the fan base you know he'd do several hundred thousand at least which seems to indicate that maybe the fan base does not necessarily like what you do and therefore will not buy it perhaps that's an answer to that i mean we had this with the shad you know the hits obviously started to dwindle towards the end of the 60s but album sales were still very good. And Why did the hits dwindle then, do you think? Just well, lack of inspiration or what? Well, I think, uh, quite honestly, the music scene had changed and was changing. The Mersey beat boom of the yeah. mid-60s, of course, was, was an, an enormously influential. And then with bands like The Stones coming up and then uh, with a slightly different approach to it, the whole scene was all about now groups with, 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 with vocals and things like this. And whereas instrumentals had kind of ruled the roost now they were being seriously challenged and and of course we were about the only ones who are having any kind of a sniff at all success with with instrumentals whereas in the early 60s there was you know there were others who are on occasion cracking it so um it just slowly dwindled and and i i guess the 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 record buying, buying public at large who might still you know like you as a band you know start to move away to what's happening if you like which is now the Beatles and the Stones and, and whoever you know why did you change your name to Hank Marvin where did the name come from well in those days everybody seemed to think that you had to have a kind of stage name you know which had yeah. something a little more romance about it than um, a normal name and um, I, was, I was called Hank from when I was around 11 at school and so that that was just kind of what I was called anyway from you know, everyone who knew me but the Marvin came from uh, Marvin Rainwater, the American uh, country singer. I thought it was a good-sounding name. I thought, yeah, that sounds good, yeah. And everyone said, yeah, that sounds good, let's use that. So. But Hank's a very sort of American name, isn't it, really? Yeah. Why, why did they call you that at school? Well, I don't know, they just did, yeah. I, I changed my name by deed, Paul, when I was 18 anyway. Oh. So, you know, I mean, my name is, is actually Hank Marvin. It's not anything else. Right. Some people seem to get confused and think it's really something else. It's not. To what extent do you think either you or Cliff would have been successful without the other? Difficult question to to answer, but I think Cliff would have been successful without the Drifters because I think he he had the voice, the looks, the the, the magnetism to ensure he would have had success. The, my, the only question mark I have on that is that perhaps his records would have turned out to not quite the same. Uh, as, as his, you know, the, the early sort of hits, um, which were sort of rock and roll based and had a lot of energy and uh, fire in them, uh, it, it may well have been he might have ended up doing more, more sort of uh, uh, sweet pop things too early on. I, I don't know. That could have happened, which might have damaged his his career. So I think, it, and on the on, on the one hand, certainly we we played a part in that. But I, I still think he would have been a star with or without us. You know. And the other way around. The other way around, I suspect that, well, we have to thank Cliff, actually, for getting Norrie Paramore, who's then his uh, record producer, to audition us. Because we, we were already, obviously, playing with Cliff and recording with him, 
But Bruce and I used to sing harmonies. I mean, I suppose it was pretty much as later bands in the 60s were doing, you know, like the Beatles and so forth. We were singing rock and roll songs and that and harmony and so forth. And, uh, you know, Cliff was aware of this, and we did backing vocals on stage with him, and he said, I really think you guys should be recording, you know. Mm -hmm. So he spoke to Norrie, and Norrie gave us an audition, which we passed, and we started recording. Uh, So that was, again, Cliff's uh, encouragement uh, that got us that recording deal in the first place which perhaps you know without his his uh, word with Norrie that may never have happened so again who knows perhaps we wouldn't have um, and, it, and of course if we hadn't met Cliff in the first place who knows when you you know first started being successful um, how long did you think it would last oh about five minutes really yeah well <laughs> you know that unfortunately the business in those days in the rock and roll business everyone around us was telling us that it's a five-minute wonder rock and roll's finished you know it's 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 had it and there's no longevity in it so i I suppose i thought initially when when we did start making records on our own i mean by then cliff had had uh quite a few hits obviously by we started recording on our own 1969 and cliff by then it had um a couple of number ones with uh living doll and traveling light and so forth Mm. So, you know, he was now huge with uh, those songs. It, because those songs broke him to a wider audience, instead of the basically teenage rock audience, he, that broke him to what we used to call mums and dads. You know, suddenly mm. everybody thought Cliff was lovely and he could sing. Whereas before, he was just a greasy rock and roller, you know. So that opened up the market tremendously for him, and, and indeed for us, because they start thinking, that hey, we can actually play uh, guitars. You know, we're not just ra- uh, making this loud noise. So, obviously, we'd seen Cliff have a few hits, but even then, there was still the attitude around us, you know, that this won't last. So, when we had a hit with Apache, which was more than we ever expected, I mean, certainly we didn't expect it to be a number one hit, and as big and, and as influential as it became, we, we honestly, we just hoped we might have another one. That was mm. about the extent, you know. Maybe if we can get one more hit, you know, that will perhaps give us a few years of you know, of, of, of a career where you can basically build on, on a couple of hits and, and, and keep on working. What other career might you have followed if your music career hadn't taken off? Uh, I honestly don't know. I, I wasn't particularly good at anything at school except uh, art. And I'd been encouraged to go into art, maybe commercial art or art in some way. But I hadn't followed that up at all. I mean, I'd, I was just way too interested in music. So I honestly don't know. Maybe I would have fallen back on that because it's something I felt I had a, uh, a talent for. Uh, on the other hand, maybe I'd have just persevered with music, you know, and become one of those guys who just, you know, plays as a semi-pro or something, or even plays as a pro, but it never becomes famous. You know, this the sort of guys around, become a session musician or something. You, the Shadows, and especially Cliff, have always had a squeaky clean image. How deserved is that really? Well, compared to what? I don't know. I mean, you know, if you, if you look back at, at the rock and roll period... Uh, when Cliff first started, he, he got a lot of bad press because he was too sexy and, you know, this, that and the other with his movements on TV. Uh, and he really did. I was looking at some old cuttings while I couldn't believe, you know, how they slagged him off uh, because he was this, that and the other. So certainly in the period of about uh, from late 58 through 59, he wasn't considered squeaky clean at all. He was considered a threat to the nation's virgins or something you know, <laughs> with his movements. So that's really weird. It, it seems that probably from 1960 onward, I think the, the, the sort of clean image came through. Now, I think one has to remember, though, in, in that period, like around 60, 61, 62, the kind of things that the press wrote about then were not really that, 
they weren't that revealing. Mm. You know, they didn't really dig into people's uh, backgrounds too much. You know, that I think they would like to have done, but there was there seemed to be a, a slightly different attitude to my mind anyway than there is today. And the kind of things they print today didn't usually get printed in those days. And and another reason perhaps was that people used to keep their private lives as lives as private as possible. So if they were up to any indiscretion, they try to keep it quiet because there'd been on occasion a few situations where TV stars had got involved with uh, another woman and had sort of uh, lost their TV shows and things like this, you know. So it was a strange situation. Now, we were just, as far as I'm concerned, like any other bunch of young kids, you know. We weren't on drugs because there was no drug scene then, which was just as well, I reckon, because there's no guarantee that if it had been there, we wouldn't have got involved in it, you know. But later on there was. Were you never, did you never get into it? No. No, I, 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 I think we all were a little scared of it, quite honestly. See, we, we'd had a lot of experience, you know, because we started so young. And we, we traveled all over the world performing. We'd, we'd, uh, we had all kinds of experiences. By the time the drug scene came, what, about 65 or something, it started to filter through. There was an actual drug scene. I mean, you know, we were 24 years old and uh, pretty experienced in, in things. And, and for me, personally, I thought... That, uh, it just scared me, you know, because I, I, I used to be, well, still am interested in jazz, and I, I, you know, I'd learned when I was younger the number of jazz musicians who'd died with drug overdoses and things like that. So I think at a very early age, the dangers of drugs were impressed upon me by that knowledge. So when I heard about a drug scene, it, it was something which didn't interest me at all. I was really quite scared about it. Did you and Cliff ever get up to anything outrageous or out of order, though? Well, of course we did, but I'm not about to tell you about it, Pete. Really? <laughs> but I mean, give us some idea of what you might have done. Well, I don't... What's the point? It's all in the past. It's, it's, if people wanted to see we had a squeaky clean image, and we didn't beat our wives, and, uh, you know, we didn't have wild drug parties, and, you know, whether if that's a good thing to do in people's minds, well, so be it. But, uh, you know, we were fairly normal people, as I say, fairly normal young guys, and did what usually fairly normal young guys do. Sure. To inform your own conclusions. Indeed. Have you ever been jealous of Cliff? Not at all, no. We've, uh, we're, we're, we're different people, we're different uh, performers, if you like. Um, I mean, you know, Cl Cl look, when, when we first joined with Cliff, I mean, Cliff was the focal point, obviously, as, as the singer. But we actually had a very good relationship because it wasn't actually like uh, a singer and four backing musicians. It was more like a five-piece group in the sense that we used to hang around together all the time, you know, we... We'd stay in the same digs together early on. No hotels in those days, mate. Digs. Yeah. And uh, we stayed in digs together. We'd party together, go to the cinema together. You know, we did everything pretty much together. And therefore, we got very close as a team. And he was always pushing us, promoting us as, as you know, his band, how great they sound, this sort of thing. Mm. He was all, you know, that was great. He, he didn't have to do that. Why, you know, yeah. and that was terrific. And... I, we never had any, well, I, certainly, I can't speak for anyone else, but right. I certainly never felt any jealousy towards Cliff. I mean, Cliff mm. is what he is. He's, he's a, um, very much a special person from a, a performing point of view, as, as his success and the longevity of his success uh, but demonstrates. But certainly, I, there was no reason for me to be jealous. And, you know, we, I've, look, I, as far as I'm concerned, I've, I've had much more success than I ever dreamt uh, I would have. Uh, and much more respect than I ever d dreamt I would have. So I'm, I'm quite happy, you know. 
Have you ever wished you looked more like a pretty boy front star? Well, not really. I mean, that's got its own problems, I guess. You know, it's got its own problems. Sometimes it, it seems to be a, a bit of a millstone around people's necks, isn't it? You know, I think of a lot of pretty boy boy stars who haven't stood the test of time, you know, come up with one or two, three hit records and disappear. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I think at the end of the day, we're in a business, fortunately, where, yes, it, it can be sometimes advantageous to, to, to be a pretty boy, if you like, um, certainly with, with young girls. I mean, that, that's true. But at the same time, we, we have a, a sort of strange business, I suppose, and that you don't have to be to be successful, as, is, as, you know, as has been proved. Um, if you look at some of the bands in the 60s, they, were, they weren't all pretty boys who yeah. you know, became very big, or some of the... I mean, it's hardly call the Rolling Stones a bunch of pretty boys. Can <laughs> They're living dead at the moment. But, but <laughs> When the shadows were at their peak, what was the extent of fan worship of you personally? Plenty of, uh, of girls throwing themselves at you. I've, I've never had a problem with getting girls, if you like, if I wanted to. I mean, it's never been a problem really, at all. I mean, I, th- I think that... Um, for example, uh, good looks and sex appeal are not necessarily the same thing. You know, you can not be particularly good looking and, and have sex appeal. That can apply to men and women. Do you um, still have girls throwing themselves at you? Well, I still get women chatting me up from time to time, yeah. You know, which is uh, always very flattering, of course. Could you guys have had any girls you wanted at that time in, in the 50s and 60s? Well, I think any girl who was needed a head examined, yeah. <laughs> People use this expression, can you, he could have any girl. Well, I don't think that's true. That, that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, how big a star you are, that there are still a certain number of girls with a, a great deal of common sense who will not be allow, allow themselves to be swayed by a particular person because he's a superstar. On the one hand, they might not even like him, you know, whereas the majority might, particularly fans, of course. And then there are, unfortunately, a lot of women who, I think, sadly, because someone is famous... They will just uh, give themselves to this person simply because he's famous. They might not even be a fan. But more so, obviously, if they are a fan. It's rather sad, really. Did you ever see Cliff in love? Uh, I think so, yeah. In the 60s with uh, a young woman in the 60s and then with Sue Barker. I mean, I, I think he was... Well, I know he was very, very emotionally close to Sue. And they were getting quite serious at one stage, so... You know. Would you like to have seen him get married and have kids? I think he would have been a, a good father, a Cliff. He's, he's, I think he would have been. He's, uh, you know, he's very family-orientated, and, uh, he, you know, he's pretty sensible, and he's, he's, he's youthful, which is great, I think, when you've got children to be youthful. Mm. But, I, I, as Cliff said himself, you know, the longer he's gone on being single, the more difficult it is to find someone, you know, that, if you like, suits you. You know, you, you get so used to being on your own and doing what you want to do, it, it gets more and more difficult to think of sharing your life with someone else. But I think he probably would have made a good father. But at the end of the day, it's his life, isn't it? And it's what makes him happy, not what makes me happy, really. Have you ever lined him up on a blind date? Have I lined him up? Um, actually, a funny, funny story. In 1959, I was going out with a young lady from Derby. She was actually a very stunning-looking young blonde lady. And um, she was ever such a, a sweet girl as well. And... Uh, Cliff fancied her like mad, but Cliff being Cliff, and, and he said, oh, I really fancy such and such. I said, oh, yeah. I said, well, well, you know, I said, look, it's nothing serious. I mean, I'm just going out with her, you know. It's like going to be over. It's one of those things, you know, it's probably yeah. over in a week. Go and ask her, you know, or I'll, I'll tell her. And so because of that, he lent me his car. He just bought a new Sunbeam Alpine sports car. So he lent me his car so he could go out with a girl, which I thought was a great, a great swap. 
How much has Cliff changed over the years in your eyes? Well, in many ways he's still the same. As I say, he's still family-oriented. He's still very close to his family, which is good. I think he's very loyal to his friends, which he always was. I think that's still a good, good thing. He's obviously got more confidence as the years have gone by in handling situations that crop up, handling criticism, etc., etc., or having to speak out on things. I think he's more able to do that. But then I guess that's experience and uh, confidence and his own ability, you know, to talk to people and uh, as a performer. He's probably, uh, let me think, the interesting thing is he's still not overconfident. I'll just give mm. you an example. He On the first night of the show, which was on Friday, he said to me he was really very nervous before he went on. And when he came off for his first little break, when... Russell Watson went on to sing, I believe. He said, yeah. Gosh, I'm really nervous, Hank. He said, the show's just like stretching out before me. He had a lot to remember, you know, yeah. a lot on his shoulders. And, I mean, that's good. I think that's very good that someone with his experience and, and an audience which adores him still can feel nervous about the show. Yeah. And even last night before the TV show, he was, he was a little bit nervous. Fun of a joke, but we have a... I don't know if they showed the countdown thing on the TV... There's a countdown thing on the screen. It goes from five minutes down to zero. When it gets to zero, there's an announcement, and the, the spot hits me on the stage, and I open up with Move It, and Cliff comes on and joins me. And it, it's quite an impressive uh, opening, really. It works very well. But that, as Cliff said, that countdown, you're normally on a show, someone says five minutes, and if, you know, you're not quite, you say, look, I've got a problem, some knock on my trousers, or, you know, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, problem with the guitar, hang, hang it on for a couple of minutes, and you go on when you're ready, basically. But in this, it's because the countdown started, we have to go with it. And Cliff said, it's like, it's just really serious here in this countdown going. And they keep saying, two minutes, one minute, you know. And that makes you even more nervous. Yeah. Is there much about Cliff that the public don't know? Um, I'm not sure, really. I don't know what the public do know about Cliff. I don't read that much about him, really, you know. Uh, I don't know what what they do know. But there are things about Cliff that, I, that I've only learned recently. I mean, I didn't... Realise how much money he earns for charity, and uh, through different things that he does, and things like this, uh, things I was unaware of. It, it's quite fascinating, really. But uh, yeah, I, d I don't know. Like Cliff, you've always been regarded as one of the real nice guys of the business. Have you ever shared secrets of a good public image with Cliff? No, no. I think that kind of image comes naturally. You, you know, you you either treat people generally with dignity and respect. <coughs> as another human being or you don't and I think if you do that and if you if you handle situations uh, difficult situations uh, reasonably instead of uh, screaming and shouting at people or walking out of shows people say you're a nice guy uh, if you do the other thing you're you're a bit of a so-and-so and some people do it naturally Cliff does it yeah, we, you know we all get annoyed with things at times obviously you know you get angry with things if people aren't doing their job properly when they should be but at the same time, I think Cliff, like me, recognises that, for the most part, we're surrounded by people who are professionals, for example, on a show like this or yeah. one of my shows, who are good at what they do. They take a pride in what they, what they do. You know, they want to do a good job. If they make a mistake, it's not because they're slack. It's because they made a genuine mistake. And, you know, they make these mistakes very rarely. And, and we make mistakes on stage. You know, I could... Uh, Cliff could sing a wrong word or do something that's a mistake or I can do that we don't scream at ourselves for doing that we might be annoyed with ourselves but and I think when you 
in this situation, it's good to recognize that people aren't making mistakes because of slackness or because yeah. they're not concentrating. It happens from time to time because we're human. And I think when you handle situations like this, or you, you know, or a member of the public comes up to you and asks for an autograph, and you, you don't turn around and piss off or something like that, which some people do, then, you know, they think, well, you're a nice guy because you've, you've, all you've done is act like a normal, reasonable human being. And I think there's no more to it than that, quite honestly. How similar has the real-life you always been to the good guy image, though? I hope that what you see is pretty much what you get. You know, I, I, I don't try to put on any TV character or radio character if I'm being interviewed as different from what I am. I just am what I am, and uh, that's it, you know. Have you ever fallen out with Cliff? Not really fallen out, no. Oh, we've disagreed on things from time to time, but we haven't actually fallen out on anything, I don't think. We've just, we've just agreed to disagree, really, on certain matters, or whatever it might be, you know. You are as fervent a Jehovah's Witness as Cliff is a Christian. Has that ever caused problems between you? Uh, not that I'm aware. Uh, we've, we've had, um, not so much in, in recent years, but, but in the late 60s, uh, early 70s, when I was actually studying the Bible at that point, we had some interesting discussions, which we both enjoyed. And, you know, I respect uh, Cliff's stand for what he believes, and I, I think that he respects my stand also. You know, I don't come in for, for criticism from him. He's never criticised me. We get on very well together. Have you ever tried to convert each other? Not really, no. We, as I say, we, we discussed a few, a few things over the years, and, and in some cases we've come to an agreement on a matter, or we've continued to disagree, and that's, that's the way it was, you know. Jehovah's Witnesses are often criticised for knocking on people's doors and imposing their religion. How do you feel about such criticism? Well, I can see how people can take that viewpoint uh, quite easily. You know, I guess if someone knocked on my door, I might not be too too happy about it. But um, we believe that it's one of the best ways, not the only way, we, we use other methods too, of contacting individuals with what we believe is a wonderful message of good news. And... Uh, we don't actually, or certainly shouldn't, try to impose our views on others. What we'd like to try to do is, is share them with people. And if they're not interested, well, they're not interested. That's their, uh, their choice, you know, their privilege. But it is a way of contacting individuals. And whilst, obviously, many people are not interested, we still find a surprising number who do express interest and are quite happy to have us call time and time again on them because they want to discuss these things. How much door calling have you had to do? I do what I want to do. It's not a question of having to do anything. It's a question that I know it's it's a way of demonstrating my faith and a way of potentially helping other people. So uh, I do as often as I can. How do you feel about doing it considering you're a well-known face? Is it difficult? Not too bad. Not too bad at all because I think one of the last things people expect is to see is to see anyone with a famous face on their doorstep. And uh, I, I get, you know, people say, you remind me of someone. <laughs> or has anyone ever told you you look like Hank Marvin? You know, this sort of thing. And I'll just say, yeah, often. You know? What are the more extreme reactions you've had? I mean, people slamming the doors in your face or whatever? Oh, yeah, I've had, I've had abuse, yeah, sure. Right. You know, I've had people swear at me and slam the door and threaten to set the dog on me and all this. Oh, yeah, you get all manner of... You get, you get a, a wonderful cross-section. It's quite fascinating, really. Cliff has been heavily criticised for imposing his religion on others too much. Has that criticism made you limit your own preaching, as it were? No, it's just I think we have different ways of approaching this. Uh, for example, Cliff has 
often on the shows he'll, he'll, he'll put a couple of um, gospel type numbers in or something like this and that's his way of perhaps trying to demonstrate his faith in some way to the audience and perhaps he hopes that in some way this will touch the hearts of people and make them think more about what uh, Jesus has done for us and, and so forth I've always personally shied clear of that on stage because I, I believe that people pay money to come to see a concert to be entertained and not to be necessarily uh, preached to in some way. From my point of view, I, I, I wouldn't do that, but you know that does mean that what Cliff's doing wrong, that's his, that's his viewpoint, and the way he does it, I do it differently. Uh, so that's really mm. all there is to that, I suppose. Both of you have obviously been exceptionally uh, successful over a very long period of time, but you've also come in for a lot of intense criticism, both of you. Why do you think that is? You know, we're living in a, a society today which I think is, is, is increasingly materialistic. I know there are people turning to uh, other things for spirituality, but often I think these are very indulgent things, you know. There's not so much a commit. It's what can it do for me sort of attitude, you know, whatever it might be. And I, I think it's a very selfish society generally we live in with a lot of materialism. And so when someone like Cliff, or I don't know, me, maybe has a certain attitude towards, say, morality or, or, or certain values, things like this, it seems to be right for for being criticized or ridiculed. I've just noticed lately some of the shows I've flicked onto here at the hotel, um, I'm surprised at the the content, you know, the, the language and the and, and the just the way the whole thing's conducted. This is definitely at the, the lowering of standards is very, very apparent. And I'm sure that on, on these sort of shows, you know, if Cliff's name was mentioned, it would be, it would be mentioned with ridicule or, or satire, and probably the same with me. And I think it's for that reason, really. They, they just look at anyone who, who they think is, is a little different as a real target. And, I mean, comedy's always been about, I suppose, targeting certain groups, you know, hasn't it, to, to poke fun at them. But I guess you're also talking about the press who are not necessarily being funny, but who are being... Uh, just unpleasant well that's their prerogative i guess i don't know what lives they lead but that's their business you know they 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 might be the biggest slags you know <laughs> i think for you know the most part really is if you're in the industry is what are you what are you as a performer you know that's the most important thing really not what you you know what your belief is whether you're a buddhist or a christian or a jew or whatever it doesn't really matter uh, if you're a performer are you a decent performer i mean did, do people come to see and go out feeling they've seen a good show? You know, your audience, if they have, then you've succeeded. There are lots of um, performers who appeal to different sorts of people. You know, I guess, for example, people who come to see my show are, are by and large, not going to see George Michael. You know, no way in the world, or and vice versa. Because there's someone for everybody, really. And so I'm quite happy that I have an audience, and I know I can entertain them, and I know from the, you know, from the audience response to a show that they thoroughly enjoy it. They've had a great night out. We've all had a good, good night of fun and music. And that's, to me, what it's all about, entertaining people. So I'm not too bothered about the criticism. Some of it, I'm surely, is, surely is unfounded. On the other hand, maybe they just don't like what I do or what, I, what Cliff does. You know, maybe they're into, I don't know, gay rights movements or something. Unless perhaps they like gay performers, you know. Uh, not straight performers. Who knows? Or they like people who, you know, who are on drugs or something like this because they feel it's uh, it's more realistic. Uh, who knows? I don't know what, where, where their brain is. Do you feel defensive for Cliff when people like George Michael and Mel C from the Spice Girls have a go at him? Yes, I do a little bit, yeah, because I think, you know, we're, we're, what are they all about anyway? You know, I mean, I, I don't understand why 
one artist wants to have a public go at another one anyway. You know, really, I, I just don't know. I mean, there was a time when I think people generally sort of kept their criticisms, you know, one artist to another, uh, because they felt they were professionals, they kept it to themselves. But So I don't see the point of that, you know, I mean... I'm sure George Michael's made a few records which I think are not crash hot and, and um, I don't know about perhaps the Spice Girls have also made records which are not crash hot I don't know but I guess people could criticise some some of their uh, product as, as we can we can all be criticised crumbs I mean everything there's not everything we do that is that is perfect or there's not everything that we do that appeals to everybody not at all and I think as professional artists you understand that Cliff seems to take it all in his stride, but is he really, you know, like you're a good mate of his, do you, is he actually quite sensitive to it all? I don't think he's overly sensitive. He is sensitive, though. Yeah, you know, not all of us are sensitive, you know. I, mm. I think particularly when fellow artists uh, uh, make some kind of criticism, it, it hurts a little bit. But uh, I, I think he's been able to, uh, I think, toughen his skin up a bit over the years and, and be able to, to uh, accept this kind of criticism. <laughs> And of course, I think what what is makes it easier to handle, really, is the fact that it went to number one, you know, for three weeks, and I think that makes life a lot easier to handle, doesn't it? When someone criticises what you've done, it's a hit. It's always great. <laughs> what did you think of his Millennium Press single? I wasn't too sure about it personally. I wasn't too sure about the the marrying of the the Lord's Prayer with Old with, the, with Old Lang Syne, yeah. And I'm still not sure about it, you know. But that's that's the end of the story for, for that one. But. Uh, you know, I was glad for Cliff that he that he had a big hit with it because, uh, you know, his reason for doing it, I think, was his motive was good, if you know what I mean. You know, he felt it was there were words which perhaps could give people some kind of spiritual focus and give them some kind of hope for the future, which I think is is, is a different way of looking at a song for the end of the uh, the year. And um, I think he performed it very well. It was you know well presented. So I think, yeah, I think his motive was good. I was very happy for him that he had the success with it. And I think particularly, too, that the money was going to charity, you know, and it, I didn't realise that um, the record cost twice as much as a normal record, mm. four pounds a record, yeah. So they made a lot of money for charity, which is good. Were you tempted to buy a stack to help him get to number one uh, and stay there? No, I can't say I was. <laughs> Have you ever thought of doing that for a friend? Or buying a stack of records? <laughs> yeah. No, not really. I figure it's got to get there on its own merit, really. You know, otherwise anything else is a bit of a cheat, isn't it, really? How gutted was Cliff that he didn't get the Christmas number one? I don't know that he was gutted about it. I th he was hoping that it might happen, but I think he knew in his heart that that uh, they peaked a little early for it. And at the end of the day, I think he's just delighted with the success he's had. You, 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 just, let's face it, you can't be... You can't not be delighted to get the number one for three weeks, can you? Uh, particularly when you didn't get any airplay. I mean, that's really sensational. He just needed that one week, though, didn't he, to make him have a hit in every decade, didn't he? That was the thing. Yes. Well, two <laughs> weeks, perhaps, I think, two weeks, yeah. Did you have to commiserate with him? No, no, he hasn't even mentioned it yet. I'll probably see him tomorrow and we'll, I'll, I'll rub it in tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> now, these days, your music won't get airplay any more than Cliff's will. I mean, how much of a frustration is that to you? Well, fortunately, there are some stations, that, the gold stations and others, around the provinces that will play album tracks. So when I have a new album, like normally we, can get, we, we do get some airplay on tracks from the album. It must be maddening, though, isn't it? It's a ridiculous policy to have an ageist drawing the line saying nobody over this age can be played on Radio 1 or whatever. 
Well, it's something that I, I, I'm personally unhappy with. Uh, it doesn't, as I said, I don't think it really affects me anyway because, uh, you know, I wouldn't get records played on Radio 1. They, they would barely ever play in instrumentals anyway for years. Right. So I think I could forget that anyway, regardless of age. But I think it is rather sad that, that rather than choosing records for the, the musical merit, they're, they're looking at it from perhaps an artist's point of view, from, he, from who he or she is and their age. I don't think that's a way to go at all. I mean, to me, music is music. It doesn't matter if a guy is 60 or 20. If a guy makes a sensational record at 60 and it's, uh, and it's a monster hit and everyone likes it, why not play it? I mean, I just don't understand the, the, the thinking. Because uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, though, Peter, because if you look at the world of classical music or jazz or blues, age is not a problem, is it? You know, some of the finest jazz musicians are, uh, you know, they, they improve as they get older. Blues musicians, you know, lots of great blues musicians in the 60s, 70s even now. Uh, same with classical musicians and conductors and so forth. No one ever says aging jazz musician or aging classical violinist, do they? But they always give you in pop music aging guitarist Hank Marvin or veteran guitarist Eric Clapton or something like this. And it seems as if in the minds of certain people in the, in the media that pop music is a music which is for young people yeah. and should only be produced and made by young people and they seem to forget there's a whole world outside youth something i didn't realize when i was a teenager they forget there's this whole world outside youth of people who've actually grown up with their favorite artists well what do you think of today's pop and rock music and the stars of today i don't know much about it quite honestly i don't get involved and i tell you what i did i watched a bit of a little bit of smash hits awards the other night yeah and i have to say that um first of all uh, I, I hadn't heard it before, the Westlife record, Flying Without Wings, I thought it was great. It's a really good song, nice lyric, and I thought it was a cracking song. I, I, I like uh, Boy's Own, I like Ronan Keating's uh, voice, he's got a, a very individual voice, nice mm. feel. But I couldn't believe the groups, the, the boy bands and the boy girl bands, on one after the other. It's just like seeing copies of, of you know, of one after the other. They're, they're all doing similar routines, same kind of songs, looking very similar. And it's just baffling, really. I mean, I, as I said earlier on, I, it, 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 it's obviously huge, hugely successful at the moment, but I, I suspect the bubble has to burst at some point. Do you think you will ever retire? Oh, I think so, yeah. I don't know when at the moment, though. I've been thinking about it for a couple of years, and I can't just... Uh, Give up the guitar. Well, it, I suppose there are several things involved in it. You know, you, you I enjoy playing, obviously, uh, very much. It's It's... it's it's good fun, you know, let's face it, it is good fun. But at the same time, you think, well, how long can you keep whacking around doing one-night stand? Not that I do it all the time. It's like once every 18 months I do a tour, but I've got a big tour coming up next year, which is about 50-odd dates, I think, starting in Europe. And it's, that's going to be pretty hard work, and you know? it's, it's pretty flat out. And it's not the actual shows that are the problem. It's the constant traveling and, and checking in and checking out of hotels. I mean, that's the downside, I think, of, of touring, really. The shows are the bonus. You know, you get out there and have a great time, and and you're you're doing what you're there for, which is to which is to play and entertain. How many hours a day do you play guitar if you're not actually on stage? That would differ. When I'm preparing for a tour or for an album, I like to try to do an hour a day practicing, which is not a lot, really. You don't need to, though, do you? Well, you'd be surprised. It does it does keep your chops in, and uh, yeah. you know, you just get make sure that bit sharp. And and if you want to do particularly recording or on stage where you're doing something a little more difficult, you can just do that, that much more easily than you can if, you, if you've let your technique slip. Do you think Cliff should ever retire? 
Well, that's a hard one because uh, who am I to say who else should retire? I think any any artist <laughs> needs to work that one out for themselves. Quite honestly, you know, he has to look at, at first of all how he feels. Uh, not, not you know, his audience is there; they'll they'll die with him. But how does he feel about it? You know, he's taking next year off. I know that, and he's going to reassess what he's doing thereafter. But I think every one of us, really, Peter, you know, you've got to you've, it's it's you've got to look at yourself. You know, you what you want to do with your own life you know you, you you can't make yourself a slave to an audience and at the same time you know you you feel that you you don't want to let them down but but you have to kind of i think if you if, if for example someone like cliff says or oh, i think i actually can't be bothered or i don't want to tour then i think you've got to own up and you've got to retire because once you get at that stage i think you'll be giving it less than 100 percent and and that's not good why did he move to australia hank uh, a variety of reasons one was the uh the weather, the, uh, the climate is, f- for me, a much more pleasant climate. I like warmth, and uh, it's a Mediterranean climate in Perth, which is very pleasant. There's, uh, there are less people, less traffic, so you, you, you feel there's less pressure than uh, living in, in Britain, certainly in the southeast. And, and the rest, less people recognise you over there. Yes, that's true. Uh, whilst we had a you know huge success as the Shands there, we we did very little television, and obviously TV is one of the things that uh, again you know I get people stop me and and, and recognise me, and, and some just say you know you look like the same old story. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it, it's uh, yes, yeah, so it gives me a little bit of anonymity there, which is good. How would you like to be remembered after you've gone? I think just to be remembered would be great. <laughs> well, you certainly will be. I mean, do you don't have any particular desire for an epitaph of any kind? No, I, I quite honestly, it, 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 when I'm dead, it won't bother me. So I let people <laughs> people form their own epitaphs and, and their own memories. Yeah, it's, it's just a, basically another job, a profession where you happen to become famous by doing it. You know, if you're successful, you're famous, and if you're famous, you're kind of successful, sort of thing. And uh, it's a job where you you bring pleasure to a lot of people. Which is the good thing about it, you know. You, you you do you help people to forget their their worries and anxieties for a couple of hours a night when you're at a show. And I've had lots of lovely letters from people, you know, just ex- not wanting anything at all, but just thanking us for the, for the shows and for this, that, and the other. And you know, really sweet letters from people of all ages, which is which is very nice. Do you feel that the shadows' contribution to music has been overlooked? I think it sometimes is overlooked. It's it's not overlooked by some people. You know, there's some people do who who, who have written and, and made the observation about the influence we had, but I think generally it, it has come to be overlooked. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a great emphasis put on the sort of middle '60s, you know, from the Beatles onwards and bands of that era, the Beatles, the Stones, and the Mersey Beat thing, and so forth, and the influence that had. And there's no doubt it was an influence. Obviously, I think you know the the, the, the Beatles' influence was absolutely enormous on the on the pop scene, but I think that they, for the most part, forget what was going on before the Beatles, you know, as if there was nothing happening. And, I mean, there were things happening, you know. I, I think uh, Cliff himself had a, had an influence in, in British pop, you know, because I think he was seen as the first real rock and roll singer. I think that, you know, just Cliff himself, the, the influence he had, how, how many people tried to copy him, and, of course, the, the number of bands and musicians who tried to copy the Shadows, and, in fact, bought guitars because of the shads and and then they you know they ultimately would have gone on to become perhaps you know uh, another kind of a group in the mid 60s but i think that influence is is very strong as has been mentioned by people like pete townsend brian may and uh you know i remember for example paul mccartney telling us that uh, 
he and John, Brian Epstein, took them to see the shadows at the Liverpool Embar to see how a proper professional group <laughs> presented themselves, you know, <laughs> to try and get some ideas. And, uh, you know, they, they knew all our records and stuff like that, but I, I think the influence was there, but I think it, it tends to have been lost a little bit by, by some people who are, who are researching the scene. They, they forget what an influence it was. If I just read something the other day, it says, until the Beatles came along, the shadows were the most influential British band in you know, ever. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Peter.